name is Bill Roberts, and welcome to another CART.ca podcast. I'm here today in Calhoun with Madeline Redfern, and we're in the Inuit Broadcasting Corporation studios. And Madeline is a very special guest today, an important Inuit political and social advocate and former mayor of Calhoun. And our focus largely will be in this two-part podcast on the internet in Nunavut. In her own words, Madeleine Redfern is the Chief Operating Officer of Canarctic Inuit Networks. She's an Indigenous woman involved in high-tech and innovation, actively involved in transformative technologies and telecommunications, transportation, and energy. As I think I mentioned, Chief Operating Officer of Canarctic Inuit Networks, Inc., and committed to building 3,000 kilometers of marine fiber optic cable into Canada's Arctic to significantly improve telecommunications in Inuit, Nunangat, and Nunavut. CEO of Sedna Link Marine Systems, which would transform segments of Sedna Link fiber optic cable into a smart, S-M-A-R-T, science, monitoring, and reliable telecommunications to monitor marine climate changes, assist with environmental monitoring, especially near marine protected areas, plus assist in collecting marine intelligence. That's a lot of words, Madeline. <laughs> That's a lot of words. So it must be very, very important. Madeline, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Bill. Not everyone who tunes into cart.ca podcasts knows a lot about Nunavut. Um, how would you describe Nunavut to a stranger? So Nunavut is Canada's newest territory since April 1st, 1999. It is sort of uh, the eastern portion of what used to be the Northwest Territories. It was created as a result of the Nunavut Land Claims Agreement, which is a modern-day treaty between Canada and the Inuit of our territory. It's approximately 2 million square kilometers, so it's huge. It's one-fifth of Canada's landmass and has one-third of Canada's coastline. We have almost 40,000 people residing in our territory in 25 communities, all fly-in, fly-out communities because there are no roads in and out of the territory. There is a short shipping season, usually depending on where you are in the territory, from about early July to October, which allows our large construction materials, office equipment, non-perishable foods. All those huge containers I see out there. Exactly, to, to come in. and But year-round, all our perishable food is flown in and flown you know, to the other small communities. And I see that reflected in food prices. Big time. It's definitely a lot more expensive to fly everything in than it is to truck it in or or ship it in. And as a result, the cost of living and the cost of doing business is very, very high in Nunavut. Unfortunately, we have a high rate of poverty in the territory. Depending on which sort of research you're looking at, it can probably vary from about 38 to 80% of people are living below the, the poverty line, which leads to a large percentage of people also food insecure. I think one of the most shocking sort of statistics that people are just astounded by is that 7 out of 10 Nunavut Inuit preschool children in our territory are food insecure. So it is a big, big challenge. We have lots of infrastructure needs and requirements for everything from schools and health centers. 80% of our water infrastructure is in poor to bad condition. 
power plants well beyond their life, you know, age of 40 years. The needs are tremendous, but at the same time, there's lots of opportunity in Nunavut. So biggest employer is the different levels of government, government Nunavut, government of Canada, local municipalities, our Inuit organizations, our Inuit development corporations. And in the private sector, we've got a fisheries industry. We've got a number of large operating mines. There are definitely more opportunities if we're strategic in our investments. When we've seen other you know, jurisdictions in Canada or around the polar regions, those investments can help develop northern economies, which are good for the people who live in the north, but also good for Canada. Tell us a bit about your own personal journey, political journey, social journey, your experience in Nunavut as a business person, as a consultant, as an advocate. So far, you're doing pretty well on the advocate part. <laughs> Originally, I started my own business in about 1988. So I've been a businesswoman for over 35 years. So I began to get involved with different Inuit or Indigenous organizations. I thought it was really important to volunteer and be part of my community and finding ways in which to be able to help expand the programs and services. So I've done work helping set up Inuit Head Start, which is a preschool program in Ottawa, the Wabano Health Centre, which provides health services to its Indigenous and Inuit population there. You know, so wide gamut from housing and early childhood education, homelessness. You know, I just felt a real sense of, of duty and obligation to help my, my fellow um, Inuit and our community members. When I came back to the territory, my home community of Akaluit was prior to the creation of Nunavut. I wanted to be part of something that was really exciting. I wanted my daughter to grow up in my home community near our family and you know experience the culture. And uh, I went to law school here in Akaluit, so I was incredibly fortunate to, to be part of that. I was elected as mayor for two terms. That was definitely, you know, intense and, and I loved, you know, the, the work. There's a lot of important work that needs to happen at our community level. But it's distinct because it's not just, you know, its own community, it's a regional hub, but it's also the capital of the territory. So there's a lot of, of different things happening in this community. Back in business and loving it, as you heard in the introduction involved in this very important large telecommunications tech project. But I also do other consultancy work, chair of the Legal Services Board. So you can tell I'm a really busy lady, and that's just probably the tip of the iceberg. They always say that if you want to get something done, you go to the busiest person. <laughs> I use that saying a few times a week myself. So it's definitely never boring. It's very interesting. I find it very rewarding. You mentioned law and going to law school. You're a graduate of Akitsarak Law School and the first Inuk to be offered a clerkship at the Supreme Court of Canada. Akitsarak has a very special history, I understand, as a legal education program for Nunavut. Can you, can you tell us a bit about that? As part of the land claim agreement, we have an Article 23, which is, strives to ensure that Inuit are well represented in the public service in, in all areas. One area of, or one profession that there were very few Inuit in was uh, in law. 
our own first premier, Paul Kalik, uh, had to go to Ottawa in order to be able to get his legal education. And interestingly enough, after the first year, his funding from the territory was cut because it was like, well, you're no longer a resident of Nunavut, but you have to, you know, go to Ottawa or one of the other Southern universities in order to get your own law uh, education and degree. We were very fortunate that uh, there are a number of people who recognize the need and the value of having legal education delivered in Nunavut. And so the University of Victoria was actually the university that did deliver the program. We had law professors from not only that university, but from other universities uh, across Canada, and actually some from outside of Canada that taught us. It was a small cohort. We started off with 15. We graduated 12, a really good and high success rate. The vast majority of the students were women. We only had two men as part of the, the program. Most of us were mature students. All of us who graduated uh, ended up working in the area of law, policy, or politics. It's, uh, it's been incredibly useful to have that legal education. I've been the chair of the legal aid program here for almost 15 years. So you can imagine, you know, as one of the largest legal entities uh, having a law degree, being a politician, having a law degree helps. You're passing bylaws in business, of course, you know, employment law, contracts. I loved it and was really, really fortunate. The fact that it was a tiny little cohort also meant that we had the ability to really have intense exchanges with each other and our law professor. The law professors made a huge effort to ensure that a lot of the northern indigenous components of, uh, of the law were you know, relevant to us. So our own legal systems as a territory, but also our indigenous legal systems. I loved it. And my daughter just graduated the second Nunavut uh, Law Program cohort, and I actually think that she's going to practice as a lawyer. These programs are important to have to Is it still in. connected to the University of Victoria? No, this the second one was with the University of Saskatchewan. Uh, Roy Romano taught there. <laughs> yes, I, I, I remember the law dean uh, saying that in, at the graduation. He's an old friend. We were talking before the podcast about people that we sort of might know together. And uh, Steve Kakwe's name came up. And of course, Marie Wilson on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But you were also on a commission as executive director of the Kikitani Truth Commission. What was the genesis of this commission and, and what were its findings? There had been something called the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples decades ago. And, and it looked at that colonial history with its Indigenous peoples across the country. That commission had a number of commissioners and they would travel and, and did a lot of research. In the North, they focused primarily on the relocations of Inuit from northern Quebec to the High Arctic. So a lot of most Canadians tend to know about the High Arctic relocations. But the Inuit of our region and that of actually Nunavik were saying, well, hey, there were other relocations. There was the killing and the loss of the dogs, people being sent down south for tuberculosis treatment that had, you know, not returned or there were a lot of, of other sort of, I guess, historical policies or decisions that were made that had a huge impact on, on Inuit. So after I graduated law school, the Kikitani Inuit Association, which is our regional organization representing Inuit of 13 communities, said, now, would you be interested in being part of the commission? I said, absolutely. 
but I wanted the commission to broaden its mandate to more than the two issues of uh, relocations and, and what happened to the dogs. I said, I think, you know, we need to look at all areas in which the federal government primarily policies related to health care, education more broadly, relocations, uh, justice, economic development, housing, because I saw them all being integrated with each other. And, and sort of this was also a period of time from 1950 to 1975, not just for Inuit moving from a nomadic way of life into permanent settlements, it was also a period of transition for Canada. The development of universal programs, you know, health care, education, social benefits, old age pension. Really fortunate that we had Jimmy Glurity. He's an Inuk, at that point, a retired judge from um, Nunatsiavut, which is Labrador be part of the commission. And we had an Inuit team. Uh, it was funded by our Inuit organizations, Nunavut Tungabit Incorporated and Kikitani Inuit Association. And it was a three-year inquiry that looked into these government policies and decisions, but sometimes the things that the government chose not to do, and the effects of that on Inuit. So we produced not only a final report, Probably since I'm I'm a bit of a worker bee, and <laughs> so it'll be did, one of the takeaways from this podcast. So we also produced a whole bunch of sub reports, you know, more intensive analysis on certain subjects like relocations, uh, what happened to the dogs, but we also did some special studies. And so we looked at official line of Canadian colonialism, you know, what was the government thinking and what was, you know, what was it trying to do and partially determined that the government had sort of multiple personality disorder. It was, you know, competing competing agendas and priorities, and sometimes they were not always aligned and in, in conflict of each other. We did 13 community history. So even though we were only obligated to provide one report, I think we had over 20 deliverables in that three-year period. And it was, you know, I think probably one of the most exciting projects that I've been part of. I was really honored to be part of it. We produced this legacy of uh, reports that uh, I think will prove invaluable as over the years influencing research. And um, it was way more nuanced way more balanced. It's a tough historical period, but as I said, it was a shared history and we have this shared reality. So we also produced 25 recommendations and explained why we chose those recommendations, which not all reports do. And all it kind of says, well, here's what happened. Here's our recommendations. No, the, and why these recommendations should be implemented. So it was just a phenomenal uh, amount of work, but fact that we were able to travel into our communities and listen to our elders and, and speak to different government officials and, and get multiple perspectives was, you know, every little piece of information was like a, a new piece of the puzzle. And, you, and it sometimes took a long time to sort of try to figure out, like, what was the government thinking? And why did it do that? And, and even understand sometimes Inuit who are like sometimes the subject of these decisions and going like, I don't know why. Because no one ever told them. <laughs> and I think what the one thing that I do want to say is what shocked me is that while it was a historical inquiry into that period from 1950 to 1975, it helps explain why our communities are the way they are, the dynamics that exist between Inuit, Inuit to government, Inuit to non-Inuit, how much of those same attitudes 
and how much of the same, you know, government priorities or philosophies are still in play today, whether it's in economic development and mining and, and training or lack of proper planning and lack of proper consultation with Inuit, and that Inuit continue to bear all the impacts and the effects of, of government and the, the transient nature of politicians or of bureaucrats who are so far removed from what is happening in the communities far away in Nunavut that you know, we really need to uh, learn from our history because if we don't, we just keep doing you know, the same mistakes over and over and over again. Thank you for that. And, and the 25 recommendations, have you seen action on 25? Uh, a few. I figured that it would probably take a while for those recommendations to really to get traction. And, and I think that the recommendations regarding better consultation, Inuit involvement in development of policies and, and program development and delivery. I mean, a lot of these things are also actually in their land claim agreement. They're, they're modern treaty obligations. Oh, even we've seen Nunavut Tungavik Incorporating suing the federal government for failing to implement their obligations. And and yes, that case was settled, but we're still seeing, you know, a lot of promises that were made that, you know, aren't being followed through. So Inuit expected in nineteen ninety nine that they wanted Inuit to be the working language of government in twenty years. Well, twenty years has come and gone, and we're actually seeing language erosion. We're not seeing Inuktitut being taught in the schools beyond grade three. And now process, what that actually means, if you were educated in your own language or your children, your grandchildren, up into grade three. So the the nuance and sophistication of that language kind of at eight-year-old level or nine-year-old level, I mean, it's it's pretty shocking. We have our children taught in English all the way through to grade 12, and we have a French school, and we've never had a real Inuit schools just because you're Inuk, you know, being uh, doesn't make an Inuit school. And that's what the Supreme Court of Canada said about French schools. You can't have English boards looking after the rights and interests of the Francophone community and their children, you need Francophones to be taking ownership and control over over their education. So we've got a lot of work to do to really um, achieve what Inuit understood as the dream of Nunavut, which would be our own territory, as unique and distinct as, let's say, Quebec, with our own language and our own culture. And you can do that in the Constitution. You can do that within the Confederation of Canada and still respect the rights of Anglophones and respect the rights of Francophones. But it, it's we've got a long way to go. I think it was very important for our cart.ca podcast listeners to hear the context of, of what's going to happen over these two special podcasts. So thank you for that. I gave you a, a fair heads up about the next little line of inquiry. There are four things, my perception of the internet in Nunavut, which occurs in this social context and political context. And if, uh, if you care to correct me or enhance any of these four observations, please do, Madeline. One, Iqaluit is the only capital city in Canada that is satellite dependent for internet and where weather can easily close it down or cripple you at the gas pump or even wreck your grocery shopping. Is that an overstatement? No, it's reality. 
fact, uh, you were telling me on the way here is that your server at the hotel restaurant that you're at was saying, like, you can't pay, you know, with your credit card or debit after nine o'clock at night because the Internet or the broadband becomes so congested. (laughs) You're going to have to go get cash if you're going to enjoy a drink or a meal at your local hotel. And so, no, it's, it's unreliable. It's unstable. It's unpredictable. And it's low throughput, so you can't send, you know, large volumes of data. It is slow, and so sometimes too slow for your online application. So I, I dread all these extra cybersecurity sort of like measures, which on one hand is supposed to protect me from identity theft and, and make sure that someone doesn't, you know, inappropriately um, use my data to access my cash. But, you know, it's just like, okay, we're going to send you a code and you've got like 30 seconds to input this code in our website and i'm like oh my god please come within there's and then i've got to type it in and then i resemble to... that panic <laughs> <laughs> and then i'm hoping that it will get my my you know valid code in in time and it really it makes it hard to do things like online banking online shopping thankfully you know, if it does go down in a small town, you know, depending on who you are, you might have the gas station sort of like, oh, yeah, okay, we'll come back and pay for your gas, you know, Madeline, you know, we know who you are, and they write your name, but, you know, they wouldn't necessarily know who Bill is. Right. <laughs> sort of like... Although they've been very nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, it's, you know, in October, I think 2011, the satellite went down for 22 hours all across the north. I'm total blackout from Yukon, Northwest Territories, Nunavut, the northern parts of all our provinces. Literally, people couldn't email in, email out. They couldn't make phone calls in, phone calls out. Planes were grounded, except for the planes that were prepared, you know, with sat phones to to fly. And uh, just months prior to that, I had been reading a report that had said that Canada's northern telecommunication is in critical condition. You know, thankfully, it was only 22 hours it went down. My brother-in-law, who works in the satellite business, he's like, well, you're lucky. It could have been days. It could have been weeks. It could have been months. It could have been forever. That's how vulnerable our telecommunications is in the north, especially when you don't have redundancy in place. You know, it, it's not just as simple as the nuisance of not being able to pay for your groceries. It goes as far as the RCMP these last six months have issued almost as many sort of public service notices in our territory saying that, oh, by the way, if you have an emergency, you need to physically come to our detachment. Now imagine if like, you know, you've got a domestic violence situation happening. Can you leave the home? No. You know, I remember one time as mayor, we we had a, a home on fire. I couldn't call. I couldn't text. You know, I had to physically drive to the fire station and say, there's a fire at house 154. <laughs> it, when the plane crashed in Resolute Bay and the military happened to be on site doing a, a training session specifically, actually, if a plane crashed, the RCMP and the military had to go on CBC radio asking people to stop making phone calls because the first responders on the scene couldn't access the people they needed to in Iqaluit or Trenton. And I mean, literally, 
that's the state of our communication. Yeah. You know, search and rescue, fires, domestic violence, uh, air traffic. It's, this is not acceptable in our northern part of Canada. So let me try a second thought. Uh, you mentioned that there are roughly 40,000 inhabitants of Nunavut. I think there's something around 7,400 inhabitants of Iqaluit. Mm -hmm. And yet Iqaluit takes up 75% of the territory's total internet capacity. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the implication there? You're nodding, so I guess I'm on the right track. But what's the implication? A couple things. One is probably have closer to 8,000 residents and about 2,000 on residents here in Akalit on any given day. And that's because we've got the four jails and we have the largest territorial college. We've got the only hospital. We've got the RCMP headquarters here, the territorial government headquarters. Most of their departments are here, even though there's some are decentralized. All the federal government departments who have offices in Nunavut are in Nikawit. There's a reason why we've got a large number of, of employees who need to communicate. Communicate with each other, communicate with their partners, communicate with their clients. And I'll, so understandably it is the uh, not only the governance capital of the territory it's also the business capital so the vast majority of businesses in the territory are situated out of Iqaluit even if they're doing business in Arctic Bay or in Cambridge you know that's just the reality it does mean that if we can get Iqaluit off of satellite as a priority, then it frees up a lot of that broadband for the other 24 communities. Immediately beneficial. And is that the plan? That is the plan. Okay. You know, it's, it's to prioritize Iqaluit and then to expand the network. That's what they did in most of the polar regions or the other uh, Arctic countries. So Nuke got connected first and then Greenland's network has expanded up uh, up their western side and now they're expanding it to the east. Similarly in, in Iceland, you know, Reykjavik got connected first and then they expanded uh, all around their coastline. Alaska, you know, Anchorage got priority, and then other communities uh, along the coast and, and Fairbanks have, have been connected. The Nordic countries, you start off sort of you know, usually where is your largest center? Get them connected. It's often you know the capitals. So no, we 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 really do need um, capital city to have good telecommunications um, for everything that I said. Yep. Good governance, yep. delivering government policies and programs, helping business. Now a lot of businesses have to do workarounds because they we don't have good, reliable, stable, you know, high throughput, fast or affordable internet. And I mean, I think I actually did a survey of our businesses recently and was I knew that as I had a sense of what businesses were spending on internet, but talking to them and finding out that pretty much most businesses at a minimum spend about $1,000 per person per month for that person to be able to do their, to do their work. That's incredible. Yeah. So if you have an organization with 12 people, that's $12,000 a month. You times that by 12, that's $144,000. And it's for bad service. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not, a, it's not like we're paying a premium rate 
and getting, you know, the fastest internet and the most reliable, most stable. No, we're paying these outrageous rates and people will tell you like it's sheer frustration. And the airlines will, you know, and a lot of the major employers, including construction companies, will say one of the biggest challenges in them being able to recruit people to live or work here, even shift work, the first question is internet. Yep. And when they find out that they can't good, good, get good internet or their family sometimes, that's been another thing. Oh, like, well, my 12-year-old found out that they can't get good internet in, in a Calloway or a Nunavut. They don't want to move. <laughs> the family protest, you know, happens. And so, no, some of the larger employers, I mean, they bite the bullet and they pay you know, a lot of money even for after work. You know, yeah. Well, after work, like Netflix, for example, though, trying to download Netflix at the hotel is an exercise in true futility. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) you know, sometimes it will work, um, but that's the thing. You just never know when. And then I, you know. I tried to send you an email before the podcast and they said it couldn't be sent. That's uh, just an email. Yeah. It's it's two o'clock in the afternoon. Yep. Because it's busy, really, really challenging. And most of us have these packages that are not unlimited. And then, you know, unlimited internet virtually doesn't exist uh, in this territory. And then I, I almost cried when I got my internet service provider emailing me on, I think, April 2nd or April 3rd saying I had used up 50% of my data for that month. And I'm like, and if, and the problem too is you have, you know, usually someone in the household, one of the parents ends up having to be what's called the internet cop or at work, you know, the IT guys are the internet cops and they are trying to always find ways to limit people in the household or people at work from using too much of the internet. At one point, the government of Nunavut wouldn't allow their employees to have access to Facebook because it was just too much data. When Facebook moved towards, you know, having those automatic video uploads, I mean, everyone in this territory literally just had their data sucked up in those first few days. And you had to figure out quickly, how do I stop the video automatic load? Because I don't want you know, that or newspapers, you know, so much of it is not just the videos related to that news. It's the videos of those ads, you know, like the Audi car ad. I'm like, I don't know. Stop playing. You're using my data. My fourth one, you know, is probably close to some of the folks listening to cart.ca now. And that is multimedia companies or media companies or communications companies, you know, would they have to physically deliver material like by a stick or a server or something or or could they actually send files you know big files to toronto or vancouver new york or whatever so most of the sort of what we call communications or multimedia companies here in akaluit or in the territory like the glue lake has isuma so isuma produced that famous uh uh, movie called atanarjwak no you can't send large files by over the internet so even if you want to do things like a land use application for development you are going to literally put your data you know before it used to be on a floppy disk and then we moved to a cd or dvd you know and then we moved to these thumb drives and no that's what people have to do um i have a cousin who runs a, a uav company effectively drone footage 
And there's no way he can send those files over the internet. And even if he could, he couldn't afford it. You know, his clients <laughs> couldn't afford it. You know, I'd be like, no, like, so no, it is cheaper. And, but it is slower to have to put your data on a thumb drive and mail it. Or recently I had some, some files that were really large. I just waited until my next trip south. And when I checked into my hotel, you know, with free unlimited uh, internet, I was able to send those large files, which included uh, photos, no videos, but large photos. I was able to send it in minutes. But whereas I just simply could not send it before. And one of the things that I always dreaded is the annual sort of software subscriptions, which before you, you used to get them on discs. And I sometimes I was just like, please, could I not have it on a thumb drive? So you now and I are dating ourselves. We here. are dating ourselves, <laughs> but that's the thing. You know, now imagine the poor government in Nunavut having to upload every year and the new Microsoft updates for over 2,000 computers. It is a nightmare for those poor ID departments. Now, you've touched on, a few minutes ago, you touched on comparisons, uh, sort of the circumpolar comparisons. But are, are there other examples that uh, we should be paying attention to in terms of how does Nunavut's connectivity situation compare to other circumpolar parts of the world? Norway, Greenland, Finland, Alaska. Didn't NWT in the Yukon get a fiber link along the Mackenzie River Valley, for example? Yukon already has fiber, as does uh, Northwest Territories. And so they're looking at the Mackenzie Fiber Link is proposed, approved build that would provide redundancy for Northern BC and Yukon and NWT. Because redundancy is really important. When the fiber optic line gets cut, which it sometimes does because mm -hmm. someone, you know, accidentally dug where they shouldn't have dug or when the satellite goes down due to weather or whatever fiber and, and satellite are really integrated so even when a fiber gets cut in northern bc or northern alberta we lose the internet over here in Nunavut, you know because the 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 network's not only integrated but it hasn't the appropriate redundancies hmm. built in they are proposing fiber optic from Dawson City to Anubit to effectively provide redundancy because the Yukon and NWT, when when they've lost internet, it's they complained, rightly so. It's like, you know, everything stops. It is. All work stops. <laughs> Governments and businesses can't afford hours or days of not having internet. They're really lucky. I think there's only Old Crow in Yukon is the only satellite-dependent community. There's a, a handful of communities in NWT. And in Inuit, it's all of us in all 25 communities. What we've seen, especially in the last sort of uh, 10 years, is the expansion of fiber optics into almost all Arctic nations. So the Nordic countries, Finland, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, um, all have fiber, as does Iceland, Northern Scotland, Faroe Islands, Greenland, as I said earlier, Alaska, Russia has big plans to with fiber optic through their Northeast Passage. We're really, you know, left out because, you know, we're satellite dependent and, uh, for all the reasons that I just said, you really do need to bring fiber to this part of the world. And furthermore, is those places that, you know, have fiber. I remember talking to my um, 
Greenlandic friends and said, I said, okay, well, you must have had to do a business case for your fiber optic. And, and did you do a sort of post fiber report that showed the benefits of having fiber? And I remember the politicians and bureaucrats looking at me like, why would we do a report on the benefits of having built fiber into our region? It's automatic. It was instantly beneficial. Um, Let's see, we'll do a report on why is air good for you. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, because I need that report. I need to prove, yeah. you know, to my region or to the, you know, to Canada that we need fiber optic in, in, our, in our north. And if you also deal with the, you know, good, solid, reliable, affordable energy, um, which we've seen in Greenland with their hydro projects in Alaska and in the Nordic countries, then all of a sudden that the dual aspects of, you know, having good energy and good telecommunications ensures the ability to support fiber optic, but more importantly, it unlocks a whole bunch of, you know, digital or um, digital economy. Uh, data centers, you know, are growing more and more going to the north because it's cheaper. And the Norwegian partner that we have, uh, bulk infrastructure, Peter Nerebo, will say, you know, it's cheaper to move a gigabit of data than it is to move a gigawatt. And mm-hmm. so it makes a lot more sense to put the data centers not only in the north, but right next to where the abundant and affordable energy is. And so that's why they want to build their fiber optic Very cable from Norway to Labrador, where there's Muskrat Falls and Churchill Falls, is to unlock the green energy, but also recognizing that data is driving energy usage through the roof because everything, there are more machines on the internet than there are humans. And that is only going to grow. You know, artificial intelligence, all the applications. Virtual you know, reality. I mean, like, I mean, you just look at your own phone. I'm one user, but I've got 50 apps loaded on my phone. And that is, I bet you you're probably the same. You've got, you know, dozens of apps and, and our apps are all interconnected. And those apps, they need somewhere for that data to, to be stored. They need somewhere for that data to be processed and analyzed. We're going to see, you know, on a ongoing and exponential growth in the data world and that means a lot of energy and that also means a lot of fiber optic cable that's why the big big companies like google and amazon and facebook and microsoft i mean these are all about big pipelines of data moving around the world 99 percent of the world's communication travels over fiber optic cable very impressive a lot of opportunity in there too, I would. Well, definitely yeah, in the sure. north. Yeah. And I mean, we even hear that in Scotland, there's work with, I believe, Microsoft underwater data centers. Again, you know, the benefits of being in a northern cold, in this case, a marine environment. Uh, we've seen plans in the Nordic countries, I think in Norway, actually taken an abandoned mine and putting data centers in sort of the catacombs of what had been the original sort of mine being safe from electro pulse you know electromagnetic pulses so that because especially with the russian invasion of ukraine we're starting to understand how important it is that we protect our 
telecommunications infrastructure, including our data centers, that there are not only sort of, you know, risks to cyber threats, but our national security. We need energy security, we need telecommunication security, and we need data security. I mean, it's all integrated. And, and I think we're starting to realize that while there's integration and global sort of components, at the same time, you do have countries that are sort of building their own independent telecommunications infrastructure because they are concerned about, you know, who else sort of owns the other infrastructure and what's on it, especially if there's Chinese hardware and mm-hmm. the NATO of the internet. Yeah, it, it's it, it, we're having these big discussions. Same thing as in the north. You know, we need to ensure that our infrastructure is is modern and is secure and is safe, not only benefits us in the North, but are also isn't end up being the weakest link of our national security infrastructure system. Madeline, the, the folks that listen to cart.ca podcasts uh, tend to be leaders and stakeholders, CEOs and chairs of boards and policymakers and chairs of the CRTC, cabinet ministers, that kind of folk in the broadcasting, telecommunications and digital media industries. You've talked a lot about what those kind of folks, those kinds of stakeholders need to know about media and telecommunications in the North and the Nunavut. Now, what is your role as COO of Canarctic Inuit Networks going to do about that? And how are you going to bring this transformative reality forward for Nunavut. What are you going to do now? So I think I'm going to sort of maybe tackle your question in two parts. When you ask what does uh, the media or decision makers or or people involved in policy and, and developing funding programs and such need to know. Well, first of all, as I said earlier, is I the Kikitani Truth Commission is that there's been a long historic attitude that remains in you know in place that the North or Indigenous peoples they don't need modern technology. You know that uh, oh no, you'll be tainted if you have access to the internet. Like your culture and your and your people aren't, aren't going to remain pure. Oh that uh, you're in the far north, you can make do with dial up. You don't deserve it. It's kind of a little bit of a charity case mentality. Or or the other one that gets me is oh you're hardy. And I'm like so uh, that means I shouldn't have like electricity. Or that I shouldn't live in a warm house or that I should have, you know, crappy internet that I pay a ton of money for. So we need to challenge some of those attitudes that actually I was involved in a project in looking at Canada's internet across the, across the country and finding out that pretty much anywhere that's deemed rural, remote Canada, or in our case, northern Canada, it's, it's just we don't have anywhere near equality or equity to something as simple as basic service like internet. I, I think that the notion that the internet is a right or telecommunication is right has started to be floated around because if you don't have it, you know, you are going to be disadvantaged. You are going to suffer discrimination. If I can't log on to a government website so that I could take advantage of an economic opportunity or service, then then my well-being is put at risk or, or my other fellow residents are. I think the other thing that is was interesting is uh, at a recent conference, Arctic 360 in Toronto, and we had all the Arctic nations ambassadors there. So at 
the stage was Sweden and Finland and Norway and Greenland and Alaska and Denmark. And the Swedish ambassador to Canada saying that they used to have the same attitude and the mindset. And when they started investing in their northern regions, is that not so much as a charity case, but then what they realized is that their biggest growth as a country for to their GDP, to their gross domestic product, is coming from the north. When you have Norway and they put a university in Tromsø, used to be a tiny little fishing village. Now it has this world-renowned marine university that many people who are interested in, in a career in the marine sector are going to. It's a thriving, vibrant, first-world uh, city that is comparable, you know, not just a first-world in the, in the northern context, it's first-world quality. We really do need to challenge and shift our mindsets that uh, investments in Canada's north is not just because something, oh, well, poor little northerners. No, we have tremendous amount of, of raw materials here. We've got largest North American mine, Baffinland. It's uh, the highest quality iron ore got gold deposits, raw mineral earth deposits. I mean, this is why China wanted to buy one of our mines is because they strategically understand the long geopolitical plan and sort of like they're buying up around the world anything that they see has has value. Yet we're kind of not recognizing it, which is, which is a shame. So I, that's the why. That's the why. Now what are you going to do about it? As, uh, as uh, someone who had long been advocating gosh, uh, 12 years now, that we need to have improved infrastructure, including improved telecommunication infrastructure. I uh, reached out to my, you know, my network and sort of said, I think, you know, the time has come. We need to bring fiber into Nunavut. Like, we can't wait any longer. Doug Cunningham, who is my partner, he, he's been involved in helping build 12 uh, fiber optic marine cables around the world, extensive network. We started putting together the plan in place and we formalized the company in end of 2020. No, this is? the For the Sedna Lake. Yep. So this is Canarctic Inuit Networks yep. and, uh, and I'm COO. So Doug has extensive experience and expertise, uh, proven successful um, in the subsea uh, fiber network world. I have extensive northern indigenous, you know, business experience and political experience, both in my region, but also uh, nationally. You know, this in some ways is a, a really good example of almost indigenous economic reconciliation in play. You know, he's an older white gentleman from Bay Street, Toronto, and I'm an indigenous woman. It's been fascinating, the dynamic. I know what I know, and he knows what he knows, and, and sort of Building that sort of shared cross capacity and, and building that trust and that relationship. And we are absolutely committed, both of us, maybe for, let's say, different reasons, but aligned reasons for seeing improved telecommunications. He's effectively come out of retirement for this project. And he's like, I want to do something good. I want to do something good too. And it's really exciting because we looked at different routes and, and we looked at costs.
costs and we looked at all the risk assessments, the, the environmental assessments and the timing and the, and the cost and determined that we definitely could build a fiber optic network originally from Newfoundland, Clarenville, for just over $100 million, which was half of the proposed cost of the government Nunavut's fiber project, which originally was from Nuke to Halloween for about $209 million. And so I was like, well, let's save the government Nunavut money. Government Nunavut has all sorts of other challenges, you know, and and, uh, and responsibilities, you know, delivering education mm-hmm. and health care and, housing. you know, housing and, and there's all these infrastructure requirements. Uh, it's never been in the telecommunications business. So we decided, I think we can definitely do this and do this faster, cheaper, on on budget. We looked at the different sort of models and did, came up with a sort of a utility model that uh, would ensure the cheapest internet to our region, to to the people who live here. And, you know, be good for governments, uh, both local and, and territorial and national government. And we think we've got really, really good, solid business case for it. Uh, we've gone through two independent international project reviews, one out of Boston and one out of France, that looked, you know, believe me, you know, forward and backward. And, you know, they, they looked at everything um, from the technical specs, the cost specs, the capital bill, the O&M costs, and they both determined that our project is definitely technically feasible and viable. So that was good news. And when you know that you got a good project, you have no qualms whatsoever being independently assessed. And and, uh, and actually, the, the second company said that's what they do. They assess big major projects for potential funders or financers and and who want to know that this is a you know this is a viable project and they said we were quick and responsive and completely transparent that we were a pleasure to work with because as we said there was nothing to hide yeah well you mentioned that the Nunavut government itself has a plan to build a fiber optic line to Iqaluit is it still planned for being built from from Nuke Greenland no, they've abandoned the Nuke Greenland um, uh, portion of the build. It's, I guess it's, you know, a so-called project in so much as that it's not been fully disclosed as to their route. They're still talking about a $209 million project to connect Ikawit. Uh, but what's important to understand is that this is $209 million that they're using out of $566 million that the federal government has given them for all infrastructure projects in this territory for a 10-year period. And so they could be using this $200 million for 80% of our water infrastructure in poor and bad condition. Power. You know, we've got power plants that are old and outdated. The terms of that $566 million is so broad and inclusive. And we're like, hey, we could save you $209 million for municipalities. They need garages. They need airport runways need to be upgraded. Health centers. One of the communities needs a new school because the school burnt down. Joe Haven office, mm-hmm. uh, which was uh, a government uh, of Nunavut offices, burnt down like I, and we we have the full support of the Inuit organizations. We have the support of Inuit development corporations. We have the support of the chambers. We have the support of the businesses. 
we continue to advocate strongly that the original rationale or reason for the government to get into telecommunications was that they were, they said, well, we don't want to get screwed over by telecommunications company. We don't want to over continue to pay outsized rates for poor service. We don't want you to do that either. So, you know, with the utility model, with the fact that we're half the cost of your project, we've got two independent valuations, we've got all this support with Inuit organizations and Inuit development organizations, with an option for investments. We're Nunavut-based, we're Inuit-led, we're Inuit-owned, with a, a real commitment of expanding, building Inuit capacity in the, in the tech sector in the telecommunications sector, in the digital economy. I think we've got a really good, strong, not only business case for why Canarctic Inuit Network should build Sedna Link, but why both levels of government, both the territorial one and the federal one, should support. Indigenous companies have been largely kept out of the telecommunications sector. Mm-hmm. You know, almost n- none of the big telecoms networks in anywhere in Canada are indigenous owned. In the United States, they have indigenous spectrum. New Zealand, indigenous spectrum. In Mexico, indigenous spectrum. And spectrum is like a resource. You know, it's it's as, as valuable and as important as fisheries, as, mm-hmm. as lumber, as mineral resource. And the spectrum set aside for indigenous people in those countries have allowed indigenous people to start to really get into that sector because you know time and time again we're just seeing that by almost design by government policy and the funding programs that we've been kept out of a 70 billion dollar industry no would <laughs> no would would Sedna Link be a not-for-profit or a private company? It's a private company, but with utility approach, because that is what we've committed to, is finding ways to bring the most affordable internet into our region. We also, if we set some of, if we make more profit than, than expected, then there's two things that can happen. One is that to reduce the cost to our customers, which we're committed to, two is to begin to set some funds aside so that Sedna 1 can lead to funding Sedna Phase 2. So connecting more communities. So all the communities of the the east coast of Baffin Island and the High Arctic. And then Sedna Link 3 is, is to connect more communities in the central Arctic and Sedna Link Four would basically take it through almost, you know, the communities of the Northwest Passage. And then also because Inuit actually have been getting into the fiber optic um, sector. So Nunavik has built fiber optic. Alaska great, great Inuit. Arctic char fishing there on the Korok River. <laughs> um, Alaska Inuit involved in fiber optic with Quintilian. You know, Telegreenland. So Inuit involved there. The need and the value to also connect those other networks. So it's it's integrating and interconnecting Inuit Ninanga, the regions of Labrador, Nanatsiavut, and Nunavut, and Nunavik, and then Inuvialuit, which is uh, in Northwest Territories. And then eventually, really, is, is connecting Alaska, and then maybe one day also collecting Greenland. All of a sudden, you've got Inuit Nunanga is interconnected. I mean, that's the vision. Now, the government's, the Nunavut government's proposal, is that, is their vision one where internet access would be free or? Oh, no, definitely not free. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> nothing. And the government does not provide free utilities. We've got high, high costs for power, ever-growing higher costs for water. You know? and, and that's the thing is we want to, to bring the most affordable internet. The other thing that's important is that how fiber optic has been built in the other two northern territories of Northwest Territories and, and Yukon. They're publicly owned because their territorial government has owned them. They've handed over the management of those fiber networks to the incumbent telecommunications company Mm. in some cases 20-year lease then you have the other telecommunications companies that are been screaming blue murder saying like we don't have affordable or open access to that network so killing competition those companies have brought challenges to CRTC saying there are proponents out there, and I understand to some extent, you know, why, that wants to see that the backbone networks are not necessarily one and the same as the ISPs. So in our model, we're what's called a middle mile provider. So we're not going to be an ISP. And then we would offer wholesale on a care neutral basis access to our fiber optic network, whether it is, you know, the large incumbent or the other smaller competitors, or even if indigenous company wants to start up an ISP, we would offer wholesale to them the same rates. So we foster competition. And so my big concern is actually what, you know, has happened in, in Northwest Territories or Yukon is literally handing over the network to the large incumbent is not been good for, for the customers. Bell Northwest Tel, that's your major player here, isn't it? Yes, it is. What does their internet service cost? I think you alluded to $1,000 a person a month in the business context. But what is the capacity? How reliable is it? And what are you paying per account? And how will Sedna Link be different? Because we would be a middle mile provider. So we would sell to Northwest Teller Bell or SSI Micro or Ice Wireless or, you know, any other sort of service provider that uh, wants to get in to the game. As I said earlier, we foster competition. Competition generally has always shown, especially in the telecommunication sector, it leads to improved service and leads to improved pricing. The customer has choice. We're, we're not against any of the ISPs because we're carrier neutral. By, by definition. And so each company will have their own costs as an ISP and the customer will have choice. That's the, the model. And we've had discussions with all of the existing ISPs and they all want fiber. You know, none of them are building fiber into Nunavut. So not not the incumbent or large incumbent Northwest L or Bell or SSI Micro or Ice Wireless. They all were waiting for someone else to do, to do it. And they definitely want whoever builds it to build it well, be cost effective, because the more it costs at the capital cost and the more it costs at the, at the O&M cost means it costs more to them. So they want, you know, mm-hmm. the most affordable wholesale internet as well, because then they can actually pass on that sort of savings on to to the government. I mean, the Northwest Territories fiber up to Nuvik is you know, the, the government of Northwest Territories is losing money mm-hmm. on that. Like and we're talking about, I think it's uh, if I can remember correctly, nineteen million dollars a year loss. You know, and so over twenty years, it's huge. Right. 
huge loss. Whereas we've crunched our numbers and we know we can cover our costs. We know that it's significantly cheaper than satellite. And we, while we haven't had access to the territorial government's um, costs, we did see the original new business case. It was a lot more expensive, not just capital costs, a lot more expensive on the O&M costs. So what do you pay for your Northwest Tel account per month now? Oh, well, well, I've got my sort of, you know, my base package, and that would be about $500 a month. But there are some months that, that I'm able to stay within that, especially if I travel a lot and mm-hmm. I'm not really using my internet, mm-hmm. unless my, my house sitter is using my internet. Yeah, there there are times you know today a month. that's and that's just my internet and my tel- my landline. I can't actually you know buy just internet without my landline. Then I pay an extra hundred and twenty five dollars a month for my cable, and then I pay you know a couple hundred dollars a month extra for my cell phone. And so whereas down we don't get bundles here. You know, I don't get to bundle my cell phone or my my cable TV and my internet together. If I combine all those costs, I'm often over a thousand dollars a month. I have to remind your listeners, it's not like it's over a thousand dollars a month because I got quality service. Even something like voice messages, I can sometimes get the voice message right away after someone's left it. I've never quite understood why sometimes I'm getting voice messages days later. I guess is the data is sort of sat there somewhere lost in space and then it sort of like lands in my inbox. Same thing with tax. You know, well, well, it, they don't always come right away when. So it. Uh, I've experienced that. Is, that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, it's just like, what is happening? Right. So no, it's it's outrageous. And so it, you want more competition. I competition's a good thing. You mentioned the CRTC and regulation, and I think Northwest Tell is one of the few, if maybe the only provider with regulated internet rates. Because of the lack of competition in the North, as from the Commission's point of view, and I understand that Northwest Tel is now anticipating more competition and looking to unregulate its rates at the CRTC. So you've got SSI Microwave, uh, Ice Wireless, I saw them down the road here, Starlink coming, Blue Origin, as I said, Northwest Tel applying to deregulate their rates to compete with, I know, Starlink, and I guess... Sedna link down the down the road. But your hypothesis is what you will do is empower that competition and that competition will drive down the cost to consumers. Mm-hmm. What I also you know think is important is that we know that Leos are coming. You know, Leos um uh, You can't get ahead of me. That's my next question. Yeah. Well, no, no, but it's all interrelated. <laughs> Right. And what I said earlier is, is that satellite and and fiber integrated. Similarly, you know, Leo's is low earth orbiting satellites. And and right now we're served by geos. So Mm -hmm. which are just satellites at at a higher altitude. I would liken that satellites are like the lawn sprinkler. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's good for wide coverage, sparse, a little bit of a little bit of data was fibers like a fire hose. It's going to take time to be able to serve our more remote communities, but it's not impossible. I can remember one question from a government representative on our waiting to connect report and sort of like, and and the report says, 
You know, the challenge of connecting northern remote Canada is not a technological challenge or question. It really is a funding question. And he was like, you know, well, that's not true. And really? And I was like, because you can actually connect Grease Fjord, the most northern community in Canada by fiber. It's a question of cost. It's 150 residents. Does Canada, can Canada afford to connect uh, Grease Fjord by fiber? Not at this stage, but as the network expands out, and if that is a multi-purpose, multi-user, multi-benefit network that takes into account not just at making it a telecommunications infrastructure, if we can make certain segments be a smart cable, SMART stands for Science, Modern, and Reliable Telecommunications. So it has an environmental and marine climate change component. It has a security and national defense component. Yes, you can start making, I think, the bigger business case to to expand connecting outward. That's the thing. If we just look at things in the most simplistic way and not maximize, you know, our public investments in infrastructure, including telecommunications infrastructure, I think we're doing a huge disservice because we're not making strategic investments and we're effectively not making smart investments. Yeah, I'm just wondering if, if Telesat would, would see it that way. I mean, they're looking at, as, as we both referenced, uh, low Earth orbit satellites and having a pretty extensive constellation of low Earth orbit satellites within the next 24 months, which would also be serving the north, which I guess Bell Northwest tel- uh, uses Telesat, so mm-hmm. so that's just that's just interesting. I mean, one is a Leo bet, and the other one is a fiber bet. What's important to understand is that we we've got a number of Leo companies that are, you know, are in play. It's very it's very fluid. There's a lot of competition in that sector. It's extremely capital intensive. Like we're talking about billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of just startup capital. And then the, the satellites don't last that long. Some of them, the lifespan of the LEO satellites, depending on which model we're talking about, last anywhere from two to five years and requiring intensively more capital. And so it's quite different when you've got an Elon Musk, who himself is a multi-billionaire, possibly now now moving to sort of almost like trillionaire status, deep, deep pockets, just like Bezos, Amazon. And it is tough. There's been a lot of speculation that while there is definitely a marketplace for up to two or three Leos, it's it starts to become financially difficult for more than than possibly two. So it's fluid. You already have uh, Starlink Leos uh, in operation all across the world. Others haven't yet been in full operation. OneWeb, I think, is definitely further ahead. They've signed an agreement with Northwest Tel. If you actually look at the building here, they've got the little like uh, OneWeb nodulars on top of the building. They've also signed partnerships with Rock Networks. They've got contracts with the military. So who knows? I'd, I, I monitor it very closely, even with Starlink. They've said their capacity for the number of customers that they can have on the ground is limited. And so that's why they're pushing the people to sign up early because they it's not unlimited. They don't they can't support unlimited. The other thing, too, is that with all satellites, they want to dump their data packets as fast as possible to an earth station, ideally one connected to fiber. 
because they want, oh, it's not like as if I'm a Starlink customer, you're a Starlink customer, and my data will go up and then just wait to find where Bill is and drop the data on Bill. No, it will find the nearest ground station and it wants to dump data fast because also it's cheaper to have data go on fiber. That's why 99% of the world's communications happens on fiber. So the two are integrated and we do want satellite redundancy. But at the same time, satellite redundancy, especially my conversations with the military, is they want fiber as satellite redundancy in Canada's north. That's how it is. It's, it, it's been an integrated system for a long time, and it will remain an integrated system, you know, integrated fiber to fiber, fiber to satellite, satellite to fiber. This next question is going to be our last question of this part one of our special two-part cart.ca podcast, Madeline. And it uh, qualifies in, in the, the dumb question category. When you look at it from a purely market or capitalist perspective, there seems to be a huge interest in internet delivery in Nunavut, the north, for what is mathematically a very small market. And you've made a very good case as to why that's a, a false argument that there are many other things involved in an incredible potential if you just turn your head and look another way. But to a bank, for example, it might not look like an optimal area for making big profits. Just because this is the last question, what can you add to what you shared earlier about why you and other commercial entities are so keen to make the effort to deliver here in Nunavut? One of the things that often gets missed is that you know, for over 20 years, we've had government providing grants and subsidies to mostly the large incumbent telecommunications companies. We're talking about if you collectively added that up, it's been billions of dollars. I mean, even the most recent almost $50 million grant that was provided you know, to improve telecommunications in our part of the, of the North, yes, it improved from 5 megabits up to 15 megabits. 15? Yeah, 15. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he's laughing. And that's just the, that's just the download speed. I mean, you know, and then I think it's like going up to five megabits for an upload speed. So, you know, and, and again, you don't need those distinctions in fiber between sort of like upload and download. I live right? in a rural community where 25 megabits per second, you know, people are grabbing their pitchforks. And that's 15 if the weather is perfect. And that's the thing. Like, so it's faster on good days. But then, literally, it has now become so vulnerable that if there's rain, snow, blizzard, fog, and it's not just even in the weather conditions in my community, it can be weather conditions anywhere in sort of like this network that is so weak, because sometimes it's like, well, it's sunny out, why, why am I... Why am I only getting like two or zero? There are times where I'm trying to do a, a CIRA, my internet performance test or a speed test. And you've probably seen my tweets and I'm just like, I can't even access the web page to do the test. I remember CRTC sort of having Canadians like, please test your internet. We're collecting data. And, and literally at that time, I was like, I can't even connect to your website to be able to do my, my internet speed performance test. So no, sometimes it's zero, you know, or one or two, and, and it's and, and it's always fluctuating, but it's never really that good. <laughs> We've been pumping millions and millions and millions of dollars in public funds and not 
you know, these been a little bit band-aid solutions, but not the solution. And I think if we had been smarter many moons ago, we would have saved, we had enough money to actually build out the, the best and appropriate solution. And we've got to stop this madness. The definition of insanity is trying to do the same thing and expect different outcomes. No. So there really is at least a public taxpayer you know, business case for government to stop these grants and subsidies that are not improving, not the substantial significant improvement that's needed and required. But also, too, is that we need fiber optic to be able to do things like, you know, De Beers has a mining interest, a diamond, diamond mine, diamond mine yeah. just about 100 kilometers outside of Gahalu. It wants to do automated mining. Well, you can't do automated mining without telecommunications. And it's probably, truth is, probably can't do automated mining, you know, satellite. It's, it's the same way that you can't do automated mining on diesel or on solar or wind. You need the big solution. So you need the big energy solution. You need a big telecommunication solution. And combined, you unlock so many opportunities and literally everything becomes different and possible. We have the opportunity to have Arctic smart cities. You know, so instead of what we've been doing in Canada's Arctic, which is effectively, you know, throwing some investments, never smart or strategic investments, because we don't even have a strategic plan. No strategic plan on energy, no strategic plan on telecommunications. A funding program in of itself is not a strategy. And that's what we've been doing is basically sort of like saying, well, we've got money, never enough, just a little bit, little incremental improvements. And at the end of the day, what we have is a region that is unfortunately, you know, has infrastructure that is literally deteriorating. You know, 80% of our water infrastructure is in poor to bad condition. You know, power plants that are beyond their lifespan. Satellite service that doesn't work and costs a fortune and does all sorts of harm, puts people at risk. But at the end of the day is that we need, as I said earlier, you know, to think and change attitudes. Because if we actually invest in a strategic, multi-purpose, multi-user, in a multi-benefit way, is that there really is a, a not a, only a public interest sort of case. In our case, we've proven that we can do it. Yes, it would require some government subsidy, but after that, we don't need any more. It's a one-time, and we won't come back to the well because we don't have to. You know what? You just don't show enough passion. <laughs> <laughs> Madeline, this brings us to the end of part one of our two-part cart.ca special podcast with, here with me now, Madeline Redfern. We're here at the Inuit Broadcasting Corporation's studios in Iqaluit. Madeline is the former mayor of Iqaluit and the chief operating officer of Can Arctic Inuit Networks and champion for a better Indigenous-owned subsea and fiber optic internet option for Nunavut and for the North. Thank you, Madeline. I'm Bill Roberts. Please join us for part two.